Our text this morning is Psalm 4. Psalm 4, all eight verses. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart for the, has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to your word now. Lord, I ask that you would help us see reality in the midst of uh, the lies that we can tell ourselves about how our lives are. Lord, I pray that you give us perspective that we see you in all your glory. Lord, that we run to you because you're the only one that makes sense to run to. Uh, God, I pray that you give us a high view of your goodness this morning. That uh, you would draw our hearts, that you would woo us to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we open God's Word, the Bible says that this is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, which means that when this is not in our hearts and it's not open before us and we're not thinking in light of it, we're walking without a flashlight or without a lamp, without something to help us understand where we're going. As a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, my goal every Sunday morning is to shine bright the truth and reality of God's Word to remind us, in a sense, to even shake us out of our lethargy or our blindness, our darkness that we've been walking in. That for one more week, you can be encouraged to go to God this week rather than lesser gods or idols. That's my prayer this morning. Last week, we looked at uh, Hebrews 11.6 and we thought about the reality that God is a rewarder for those who seek him. We're going to uh, do a little mini-series here 
last week, this week, and one more week next week. And uh, then we'll get back to Luke. But I want to flesh out what it means. What does it look like when a person lives knowing that God is a rewarder of those who seek him? What does that look like fleshed out? Here's the verse we focused on last week. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here's what saving faith is. You believe that God exists, but not merely that, but that you believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Saving faith looks at God and looks at the world. And when the Holy Spirit miraculously changes the taste buds of the heart, saving faith says, this is a greater reward. God is better than what the world has to offer. To believe that God is a a rewarder in this world is difficult. Things of the flesh deliver right this second. I'm hungry, so I eat food. I'm depressed, so I get drunk and feel better. I desire a deep, intimate fellowship, and it's too difficult with my wife, too much work. That might not happen without a lot of hard selflessness for months. So let's go to pornography right now. Right now I can have what I want. It's easy in the flesh. But we talked last week, the world's rewards are what? They're temporal. And then they leave us worse off than it was before. But God's rewards are eternal. They're more difficult. You can't always see it. you got to live by faith without feeling something instantly. It's not being directed by your feelings, but rather by believing that God's word is true, acting according to that truth even when you don't feel it. That's what we talked about last week. This reality that God is good will be challenged by three things according to the Scripture. In Ephesians 2, the Bible says we have three enemies. One enemy is the devil, and he's seeking to devour you. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Cosmic powers spiritual beings that have interest in your soul. We're also attacked by the world system. The devil is the one leading the song of the world right now. He's the prince of the power of the air. 
and his system lies to us, makes promises that it cannot keep. And the third enemy is within ourselves. It's in our flesh. It's in our fallen nature, in our heart. So the biggest lie in the world is God's not good. That's what Satan put in the mind of Eve in the garden. Did God really say, oh, He knows that if you do that, then you're not going to have it nearly as well as if you eat. You can't trust Him. You can't believe Him. So we're tempted to believe the biggest lie from without and from within. And what makes it even more difficult is we experience suffering. And in the midst of difficult circumstances and suffering, those lies that God's not good start to feel really real. Last night, I looked at, just real quickly glanced through uh, Twitter. You can pray for me. And a pastor, Pastor Tom Buck, tweeted this. Would you stop and pray with me right now for a dear pastor friend whose eight-year-old son died this week? The funeral is today and the family is obviously broken, are heartbroken, but depending on the grace of God. Their senior pastor is one of my best friends and will be preaching the service. Eight-year-old son. You want to know what my heart does when I read that? Fear floods into my heart. And I think of all my girls. And I think, that could be in my family. It could be one of my children. This sick feeling. I run my own scenario through my head. And then I think, I could be the pastor doing a funeral for an eight-year-old little boy at Sovereign Grace Church. Is your anxiety rising? Even as you heard me say that, did you run your own scenario through your own head with your own children? Is there anyone here like me who in a fallen world can be afraid and anxiety can begin to grab hold? When you hear of a car accident where someone your age or younger was killed or seriously injured, what are your top three questions you ask? Without even thinking, what are the top three questions you ask? And you don't even know why you're asking them. Was he wearing his seatbelt? Was he drinking? Was he speeding? Why do we ask questions like that? Because we instantly think, could that be me? Well, I wear my seatbelt. I don't speed that much. And I don't drink while I'm driving. 
The reason why we ask questions like that is because we're instantly trying to figure out what are the chances that this could be me? Happened to me. I want you to imagine for a second you're traveling in an interstate uh, 29 and you get north of Watertown. You're heading towards the summit corner. Put yourself in these shoes. You're driving the speed limit. You have your seatbelt on. The roads are not icy. It's not a no travel day. And up in front of you, a herd of deer begins to walk across the interstate. Nobody drives through a herd of deer. You stop, right? That's what my teammate did two weeks ago. And a semi hit him from behind and he's paralyzed from his chest down. A brother in Christ with little children and a wife. Life is difficult in a fallen world. Is God good? Is God good in light of a funeral for an eight-year-old boy? A father who's now paralyzed? You can pray for him. His spinal cord wasn't severed. They're hoping swelling will go down and he could possibly regain movement, but they don't know so far no progress. His name's Eric Meyer. Life is difficult in a fallen world. That is why, as a pastor, maybe my biggest goal is to create in you a biblical theology of suffering and the sovereignty of God. If you don't have a biblical understanding of suffering in a fallen world and the sovereignty of God and God being good in light of a world where bad things happen, you will live in slavery all your days on this earth. And God in Christ never meant for you to live in fear and anxiety about these things things. Let's not just talk about tragedy, but let's just talk about the everyday little difficulties and frustrations we have in a fallen world that can make us think that God is not good. I was reading a short blog on Desiring God written by a pastor named Stephen Lee. It was entitled, We Complain Because We Forget. We complain because we forget. So think of all the little details of your day that you either say verbally, you, you speak complaining type words, or you suppress them and feel them in your heart. Is there anyone here that in a fallen world tends towards complaining? Here's what he says, though. It's interesting. He says, 
Grumbling is not ultimately the heart's response to circumstances. So you might think that. Grumbling is my heart's response to circumstances. Why are you upset? Because this happened. So frustrating. He says, that's not, that's not it. Grumbling is not ultimately the heart's response to circumstances, but to God. You see, every little grumble we have in the little things in our day is us believing the lie that God is not sovereign and he's not good. He should be doing it another way. My life should not be panning out the way it's panning out. You see, it's way too personal to say, I'm pissed at God. You know, we, we kind of know that's wrong. And yet, we cover it by saying, I'm, I'm upset about this thing. You see, it's a poor theology of how the world works. What does the Bible say about suffering? And then this Stephen Lee goes on and he says, spiritual amnesia, forgetting that God is good, forgetting what God has done for us in Christ, is a deadly disease that threatens your faith and joy more than any cancer. It penetrates to the core and rots your heart within. So you think the diagnosis of cancer will devastate your joy and your life? What will devastate it much more is doubting the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. Imagine for a minute, what if you got to be there when God poured out all the plagues on Egypt after being in slavery for 400 years? What if you got to be there and watch God rescue his people out of Egypt, destroy the most powerful man on earth, and miraculously split the Red Sea. What if you were there? What if you were with them? What would the response be like? You think it would be, I can get through anything now. Did you just see what our God did? And yet, here's what Stephen Lee writes. He says, Yet Israel's response to the spectacular deliverance from Egypt is not mainly praise and worship and wholehearted trust in God. Instead, Israel responds with grumbling, complaining, murmuring, quarreling. No water, Moses. Where's the beef? Moses, I have blisters on my feet, Moses. Who died and made you boss? Are we there yet, Moses? Spiritual amnesia sets in quickly and covered the eyes of Israel's hearts. So they soon had forgotten God's grace and his miraculous deliverance. And then he goes on to say, yet that's my heart and yours. Where's the dinner, honey? Leftovers again? Where's the protein? 
Is this all you got done today? No, this is Stephen Lee and not me. I'm quoting this. (laughs) Can you change the dirty diaper? What's the sticky stuff on the chair? I can be just like the people of Israel. I know you've forgiven all my sins at the cross, rescued me from eternal eternal conscious torment, and given me everlasting joy in your presence, but all we have for dinner is ramen and Cheerios. We can doubt God's goodness in the big things and in the little things of life. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless, innocent, and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We're just like this generation when we complain. When we grumble about the weather when we grumble about things God is sovereign over and He's sovereign over all things. You see, we give evidence when we grumble that we've forgotten. We've forgotten a good theology of suffering that actually works for the believer's good, ultimate good. Did you know there's a promise in the Bible that God says, Once you're saved, once you're in Christ, every event of your life, good and evil, is working for your ultimate good. And what's that ultimate good? That's what we're going to look at next week. This is in Romans 8. It's that you be conformed into the image of Christ until you get to the point where you are perfectly glorified with Christ in heaven forever. And yet, we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God. If you don't have, think, I just, this is a long introduction because I want you to realize what's at stake here. If you don't have a good theology of suffering and you forget the miraculous rescue of God in Christ, you will believe the lie that God is not good. And when times get hard, when your circumstances don't turn out the way you think they should, you will forget and doubt the goodness of God. And here's what will happen. The result of not believing the goodness of God in suffering, here's what will happen. The things that are good, when things are good in your life, you'll worry. See, if you doubt the providence of God's goodness in your life, His sovereign organizing of all events for your good. If you doubt that, when things are good, guess what you'll do? You'll worry. Because what can happen? Tomorrow, my child could die. Or your child could die. Or a herd of deer could walk in front of you. So in the good times, when you have a poor theology of God's goodness and a biblical view of suffering, are spoiled with worry and anxiety. And when the bad times come, 
It's just like, yep, I knew it. He's not good. God would never ordain these difficulties in my life. So the whole of life, the believer purchased in Christ, when we forget the goodness of God, when we forget the promises of God, the whole of life on earth becomes spoiled by a heart that's rotting at the core, deep down on the inside, starting to believe a lie that Satan gave right in the garden in the beginning. So what will make you sleep well tonight? What will bring you an anxiety-free moment? I don't want to say day because I don't know if that'll happen till Christ returns. We can make progress in sanctification. We can trust God more. We can enjoy the good days more and we can worship on hard days more. But what will do it? We're going to look at Psalm 4. We're going to take a quick look at Psalm 3 because they're kind of connected. And before we do that, though, we're going to go to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15 because the writer of this psalm is David. And David doesn't write this psalm in a vacuum. He's living life in a fallen world in really scary situations. And if you're going to put flesh on it, we have to understand what David's going through. And we're just going to summarize. We're not going to read all this. We don't have time. But here's what's happened before this. You remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah by sending him on the front lines? So that's just happened. Bathsheba gets pregnant and has a son. And that son gets sick and dies. There's drama in Israel. In, in the royal kingdom, the tabloids could be writing very good stories right now. For King David, this, is, this has been a little bit of a rough go of it. His son dies. Then one of his other sons named Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar is beautiful. She's gorgeous. And Amnon literally gets sick, his lust for her. He can't handle not having her. And he has one of his buddies give him a really bad idea, pretend like you're sick, tell King David, your father, that you want Tamar to take care of you. And he rapes against her will, Tamnar. And right after he does it, this is what lust does. Lust is not love. Right after he gets what he thought he wanted, guess what the Bible says? He hates her. Get her out of my presence. It's not love. This is lust. What would this do to a father's heart? Your daughter was just raped, 
by your son. And then Tamar's, so they were half brother and sister. Tamar's full brother is Absalom. Absalom is upset. So he schemes. And when Amnon is drunk, Absalom has him killed. So now, think, you're David. Now your son Absalom has just killed your other son that just raped your daughter. This is how it reads. You thought the Bible was boring. It's not. Real people, King David with real problems, with real anxiety, yet David had a good theology of God's goodness and a good theology of suffering. And this leads us up to what we read in 2 Samuel 15, 13. His life's about to get more complicated. Here's what we read. And a messenger came to David saying, so Absalom, what I should say is Absalom kills Amnon. David uh, sends him away for a little while, but then pardons him. And now Absalom conspires to try to take the throne. He wants to kill David now. He wants to take over the kingdom. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So imagine this. The people that have been loyal to you now have gone after your son who's planning to kill you. I know you probably had a difficult week last week with all the things, but let's just admit when we get to Psalm 4, we better listen with our ears open because he's having a rough go of it. Okay. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring, down, bring ruin, down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decided. So the king went out with all of his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house, and all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath. They all passed on before the king. And then in verse 23, in all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook of the Kidron, and all the people passed towards the wilderness. This is a sad day in the kingdom of Israel. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they sat down the Ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. What's David know? His life's in the sovereign plan of God. We're not just going to take this ark with us. You go put it back. If God wants us here, he'll put us here. 
But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David knows he's just sinned with, sinned with Bathsheba. He knows he doesn't deserve to be king. And he says, let God do what he should do to me. Difficult circumstances, good circumstances. He's humbled before God. And then uh, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city of peace with your two sons and Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. He wants to be led by the word of God. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David came up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. So you got you get the picture of David's circumstances? These have not been good days. These have been hard days with a sinful heart living in a fallen world with fallen people. And then in chapter 16, we're skipping some here. What ends up happening is Absalom goes into Jerusalem and sleeps with all of David's concubines he left behind. And that's sad. Then in verse 5, when King David came to Barim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually. So they're moving along. This guy comes out cursing continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zerah said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king says, theology Right view of God, right view of the sovereignty of God, right view of suffering says this. But the king said, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zerah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, uh, then shall say, why have you done so? Here's what David says. He's cursing me, but guess what? I'm sinful. God may remove me. Don't off with his head. Are you kidding me? No, yeah, this is a pain in the butt. We're walking and stones are coming at us and this guy won't shut up and he keeps cursing at us. Yes, all that's true. And then David says, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? 
And David said to Abishai and to all the servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? <laughs> He's saying, if my son wants to kill me, eh, this, we'll let the Benjamite want to kill me too. Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. He believes in a sovereign God. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Here's what he's saying. It's suffering some today, but good may come from it. He sounds like the Apostle Paul. It's almost like he knows the same God that Paul knows. Listen to Paul. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you want temporary reward? Or do you want this light momentary affliction, which seems really hard and is hard, but in comparison to eternal weight of glory, it's light. David says, let him keep going. This might turn out in God's sovereignty for good to me. And then verse 13 says, so David and all of his men went on the road while Shimni along uh, on the hillside opposite him cursed as he went and threw stones and d at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived at Jordan. There he refreshed himself. So David gets there. We don't have time to do the rest of this. But there's a plan to kill David in his sleep. That when David camps, they're going to find him and kill him. Now, turn to Psalm 3. Here's the important thing. What ends up happening, by the way, is Absalom, you probably know the story, seeks David. David tells his men, don't kill Absalom. Defeat this army, but don't kill Absalom. And he ends up riding on his mule. His head gets caught in an oak tree. And he's hanging there. And uh, Joab pierces him through his spears and kills him. And David is furious and Joab's furious. Men died today and we're not going to kill this one that's trying to take the throne. David, David cries out and says, I wish I would have died rather than Absalom. I wish I would have died rather than my son who's trying to kill me. You know, this is a picture of Christ, right? But he camped. Most people think Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are written the nights that David camps when Absalom's trying to kill him. So, Psalm 3 says this, a Psalm of David when he fled Absalom, his son. So we know Psalm 3 is, most people think Psalm 4 is, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. Would you sleep that night? 
Would you sleep that night? Be honest. You're not sleeping that night. I'm not sleeping that night. Unless I'm believing good theology about God's goodness and suffering. I laid down and slept. I awoke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David knows he didn't slay Goliath because he was a great warrior. He slayed Goliath because God is a great warrior. God is his savior. So then look at Psalm 4, and this is where we're going to end. We're going to have to do this quickly. What we do when life gets hard, the charge of this sermon is pray. Seek God. Seek God. He's a rewarder. And here's how David sought him. He prayed desperately. He said, answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David knows he's sinful. He doesn't say, save me because I'm good. He says, be gracious to me. Answer me. I'm desperate because you're my only hope. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Then he says, be gracious to me. Here's what David knows by faith. If he's going to be saved, God has to provide righteousness for him. Because if he needs grace, he doesn't have it. So David was looking for a righteousness that comes from God. Romans 3 tells us that righteousness was the person of Jesus Christ. The perfect life David could never live. Jesus lived on his behalf. He was David's righteousness so that anyone who would trust in Christ, Christ's righteousness is in their account and their sins are taken away. David knew this. He knew where to go. And then we see him pray selflessly. Now he's imagining Absalom's camp as though he was speaking to them. He says, O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies. He's saying you're being led by the sinfulness of your heart, those of you who are trying to overthrow the Lord's king. I don't think he's being selfish here. I think he knows their hearts are being driven by sin. He's thinking about his enemies. He's praying in a way that is loving his enemies. And then pray confidently. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him at the end of this long day with no circumstances that would give you any security, he believed that God absolutely heard him, heard his prayer. There was absolutely fellowship there. And then pray carefully. He says, be angry and do not sin. He may be saying this to those around him who are angry at Absalom for them trying to overthrow the king. And he says, 
Be careful, be careful. Another translation could be tremble and do not sin. When you're afraid, you'll go to idolatry. You'll go try to secure yourself somewhere else. And instead, DSV says ponder in your hearts on your bed. It could be translated speak in your hearts on your bed. Rather than be led by your fear, speak truth in your heart. Ponder in your hearts good theology. Be angry and do not sin. And then, I just want to point out here, Peter says this. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you also may rejoice and be happy when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't be surprised when your circumstances get difficult because the Bible never said, as long as you're on this earth, I'm going to make sure your circumstances work out. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation, but I've overcome it. Don't be surprised when God grows you through difficult circumstances. And then pray repentantly. Offer right sacrifices. The idea here is a burnt offering that's either for sin, you're coming with a humble heart before God, or an offering desiring fellowship with God. Pray in such a way where you're seeking fellowship with the God of the universe. Pray trustingly and put your trust in the Lord, it says. So on this difficult day, David could say, Lord, change all my circumstances. Instead, what he's speaking to his own heart and maybe to his men is trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. One commentator says there's no point in denying the trembling or the fear, but the right response is to use the night hours for quiet prayer, approaching God in the spirit and sacrifices in consecration and confession and fellowship. Seven, pray indulgently. Here's what David says. There's many who say, who will show us some good? Here's what David says. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. You want to know what David's saying here? You want to know what's better than my grain and wine abounding in awesome circumstances in this world? Sleeping in the wilderness, praying to God when I know He hears me. I have more joy when an army is seeking to kill my life if that night I can pray to Him and He hears me and He fellowships with me. Isn't that amazing? Nothing can touch you if you live by faith and know this God. Psalm 3 said, thousands can be surrounding me. I'm okay. I can pray when I stop. I can remember the truth. And then finally, pray restfully. 
in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, can make me dwell in safety. Getting a report back that Absalom decided he doesn't want to kill you anymore. The army turned away. That's not what makes David sleep. You alone. If you write in your Bibles, underline alone. Because when you're tempted to anxiety and to worry and to doubt in the midst of difficult circumstances and you don't want to go to God because you're questioning His goodness, David says, for you alone make me dwell in safety. I'll both lie down and sleep. The same God that helped David get to sleep in the midst of the storm is the God that can help us sleep in the midst of all this stuff. But you have to believe what the Bible says about God and about suffering and not be surprised when it comes. This is why it's the fight of faith. Paul got to the end of his life and said, I fought the fight of faith. Father, I pray that we would trust you in this way, that you would give us the type of faith that David had, comfort us even in knowing that David's a sinner. David's life is messed up. His family is totally messed up. And yet, you're a God that can bring peace even in the midst of dysfunction when we trust in you. Lord, I thank you for Christ. Thank you for what he's done for us in Christ. That our sins can be taken away. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.